This PBS NewsHour podcast is supported in part by Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Thanks to Dana-Farber's foundational work, protein degradation can target and destroy cancer-causing proteins right inside the cell. It's how Dana-Farber is working to treat previously untreatable cancers. Learn more at DanaFarber.org slash everywhere. Major funding for this podcast has been provided by Public Welfare Foundation and the Pulitzer Center. Hi, everyone, and welcome to a special bonus episode of Broken Justice. I'm Amna Nawaz. And I'm Frank Carlson. So the last episode of Broken Justice is out now. And in it, we tell the story of how Ricky Kidd, after 23 years behind bars for a crime he always said he had nothing to do with, was exonerated and released from prison. And that was in large part thanks to the help of Sean O'Brien, his pro bono lawyer and a law professor at the University of Missouri, Kansas City. So this week, to mark the end of the podcast and to celebrate Ricky's freedom, we brought Ricky and Sean to Washington, D.C. for an appearance on the PBS NewsHour. And since we have them here in town, we wanted to sit down with them for a conversation to answer some of the questions we still have. So Ricky and Sean, welcome. Thank you. Thank Thank you. you for having us. So, Ricky, when we spoke on the broadcast, you could count to the day how many days you have been free. Today we're at? 112. 112 (laughs) days, you say, with a big smile. How are you doing? What is every day like for you? Um, I'm doing good. First of all, thank you for asking. Every day is new. It's something new. I feel like I'm creating history every day. It's exciting. It's meaningful and sometimes even challenging. So uh, let's not forget I've been gone for 23 years and suddenly reemerged back into society. So uh, some of that can be challenging, but overall, I'm good. Tell me about those challenges. What do you mean by that? Well, at first when I came home, I thought I was perfect. Like there was no issues or I talked to Frank extensively about where where are the issues, where are the problems that exonerees have, and I was like, ah, ah, not me. Uh, but I was also open to the possibility of them coming. And, and so when you ask what are some of those challenges, I discovered that I'm claustrophobic in certain uh, tight spaces. I discovered that I'm starting to begin what I consider s- survivor's guilt, where other people who I know is innocent or who I believe is deserving of some form of better justice continues to languish in prison, and it it bothers me. One of my close friends, Lamar Johnson, continues to be in prison, and we made a pact to each other that whoever made it out first would come back and get the other. So I think about him a lot, and one of the other things, I've been having nightmares, and I was just sharing with Sean about waking up in the middle of the night back in prison, stories where guys are reminding me, hey, man, you're already out. You know, dreams are weird. And so I'm having this conversation in prison about trying to behave to get out. And then one guy said, hey, man, you're already out. You've been out. In fact, what are you doing here? Weird dream, weird, weird dream. And I said, you're right. So I went to the door and I started shaking the door to get the guard's attention. They said, hey, I've already been released. I've already been released. And then I turned around and everybody had disappeared in the prison. I was there by myself feeling lonely, isolated. I'm shaking on the door, and the guard is looking at me, laughing, and not opening the door. 
and I'm shaking on the door, let me out. And when I woke up, that's how I woke up in that frantic state. Uh, I couldn't go back to sleep. Sometimes I just share it with Sean that I'm scared to go back to sleep. Sometimes I drink coffee so I don't have to go back to sleep. Um, but those are some of the issues underneath the excitement and enjoyment that I'm beginning to experience. And Sean, in that last episode, we, we stopped at your house to talk to you about, it was the day after Ricky was released, his first full day of freedom, and you were already thinking about some of these issues that he was going to be dealing with, um, the kind of emotional issues that were going to come. And you've seen this story play out before, and I wondered if you could just kind of talk about what you've seen people deal with and, and how the kind of range of responses people have to this experience. Yeah. Um, everyone is different because we're all unique, but they all come out with some form of post-trauma stress disorder. Ellen Reasonover, her daughter was two when she went to prison, and she said, I felt like I was kidnapped. And she literally cannot function. Joe Amrine, while we were on the way out here, he called me, you know, night before last and said, they're shutting off my electricity. He works a minimum wage night job. It doesn't pay the bills. And so Ricky and Daryl Burton are helping him. But, you know, some people are so damaged that he just can't be in a place where he's around people during the daytime and he's supposed to be in one place. He just cannot do that because he gets this anxiety and he feels like he needs to run outside or he needs to just get away. So it is difficult and it's an adjustment for every single one. And um, we've had exonerees, not any of mine, but others have committed suicide because they're like soldiers coming back from combat. They're like POWs. I think Ellen Reasonover said it best. It's like she was kidnapped and held against her will for 18 years. You know, and then putting the family back together is very hard because the family, especially the ones who are children, they have a lot of anger, but they don't know where it belongs. So they're mad at the parent who wasn't there for them when they graduated high school, when they, you know, accomplished life's milestones. They don't know where to put that. So it's difficult to help get them back together. And, and Ricky, you're actually now working with a group that helps both helps exonerate people currently in prison and also helps them adjust to life outside prison. Can you talk a little bit about that work? And Sean, feel free to jump in. And what, what kind of change and strategies have you seen being developed to help people sure, adjust? Sure, sure. Good question, too, by the way. And so I've had the opportunity since I've been home to work with an, an organization called Miracle of Innocence, created by Daryl Burden, exoneree, and Lamont McIntyre, an exoneree both out of Kansas and Missouri. And so now I'm the director of exoneree services with that organization. And, and what my job and responsibility is to create post-release help for people who we believe who may be innocent and try to help them way before they're just thrust back into society with mental issues. I work alongside a lady named Jane Gray. She's a clinician. And so we're helping them before they even get here with worksheets and um, mental workshops, whether that's over the phone, whether that's via uh, email, whether that's through their family or if prisons even allow us to come in to try to help them before they reintegrate back to society. And once they reintegrate back in society, there's post-release help for them as well. 
I've been working on the policy over there because this program is kind of new to where we can point them in a direction of resources. We can point them, for example, if they need to get around, we have volunteers who's willing to be their personal Uber to get them to birth certificates, social security card, job interviews, health check-ins, things along that nature. There's a small fee, I believe of $1,000, that's automatically given to them just for being an exoneree, no strings attached. So those are some of the type of things. Lastly, I will say real quick, uh, one of the things that I'm really most excited about and Sean is going to try to help is where we do group sessions together and where we're able to talk amongst each other about what some of our issues are and movie night, bowling night, dinner night, those type of things. You don't really see those or we're not aware that those type of programs exist, but over at Miracle of Innocence, that's what we'll be doing. And Sean, has there been a growing kind of understanding of this um, transition period and how, I mean, we tend to think of these, the exoneration being the end of the story, but for, of course, for these people, it's the beginning of a whole new story. Yeah, we, in the beginning, didn't realize how traumatized this population would be. And we were looking for a treatment model and we found the best treatment model are the same post-trauma treatment that was developed for returning Vietnam War veterans coming back to a society that's still kind of mixed in a lot of cases. You still have prosecutors who say, you really did this, you didn't. And so there are some people who will continue to stigmatize people who are released. You tell me about one man who carried around the headline of the newspaper that said he was was exonerated just to prove to people. Yeah. Dale Helmig, uh, who was exonerated in 2010. Um, one of the cases I had to slow down Ricky's case for. Uh, so Dale was free, but he still it took him 24 months to get a job. And this is a guy who is a handyman. He's got carpentry skills. He's got auto mechanic skills. I mean, he's like the Renaissance man of home improvement. You know, he couldn't get a job, and now he drives a taxi in Osage Beach, Missouri. Not a very well-paying job, but you know, he's content there. But it's a, a real struggle. So we found that that kind of PTSD treatment and people who have experience treating traumatized veterans are probably the best therapists for this kind of trauma. You know, Ricky, I got to ask you because you mentioned acting as a personal Uber for other exonerees. Uh-huh. Uber was not a thing. When you were first imprisoned back in 1996, a lot has changed. For There is the heavy mental and emotional work that will take a very long time. There's the day-to-day logistical stuff. Yes. Smartphones, Uber, yes. Netflix, how to yes. contact people, how to get around. How how is that reentry been for you? About half and half, if I could say. My comprehension is pretty strong. So as simple as it is or can be, Show me a couple of times and I'll catch on to it. But it's so much, to your point, it could become sensory overload. And so while people say, ah, oh, you're doing well, or ah, oh, you're looking good, says freedom is looking good on you, ah, oh, it doesn't look like you've been in prison for so long, a part of that has contributed to the people around me who help. Sometimes I have to say, load up my lift thing, or put my card on lift for me, or... To I be need, fair, I still ask for that help sometimes. Yeah, so, <laughs> I, so some of it I've, I've caught on to. The rest that I have to catch up to because it is so much people help me along the way and kind of make it look easier. But I'm thankful that I have those people because every exoneree want, 
And with Miracle of Innocence, we're trying to make sure that they have what I have or they succeed like I have succeeded. You know, one thing I think people might assume is that when someone gets exonerated, that the state somehow compensates them for that time, for that decision, for that, that those years lost. That's not automatic. It's definitely not automatic at all, at least not in Missouri. There is no compensation bill in Missouri unless it's DNA exoneration. So as an example, when I was exonerated by clear and convincing evidence by the Honorable Judge Darren Atkins, it was, it was enough to get me free, but it was not enough to say, here you go. Not an apology, not anything. So we come home and it's strangers and individuals and family who try to help you get back on your feet. And mind you, we don't have a 401k. We don't have a stash or, or anything. We're back at ground zero and you're automatically needing basic necessities, clothes, food, shelter, transportation. So, yeah, that, it's a sad commentary when, when, you know, such strong opinion from a judge says this man is innocent, deserves his freedom, but the state says, okay, but he don't deserve anything in the form of compensation. Sad. And Sean, just legally speaking, people can sue the state in a civil suit to try to get some kind of compensation. Is that how that works? Right. But they have to get over the doctrine of governmental immunity. It's a holdover from the Middle Ages where all law flowed from the king and the king can do no wrong. So you cannot sue the king. And we have retained that in American jurisprudence so that you, you can never sue a prosecutor. They are absolutely immune. And there are only very narrow circumstances where you can. But they have to step out of their role as prosecutor and become like an investigator. You can sue a police officer, but only if that person acts in bad faith. And that means they have to clearly understand that their actions are violating the Constitution. On some levels, ignorance can be a defense. So ignorance of the law is no excuse for you and me but it might be for a police officer. That is a hard hurdle to get over. Um, and so most exonerees get nothing. You either win big or you don't get anything at all. I've had exonerees get the highest $16.5 million, another $7 million, but most of them zero. You know, Ricky, I got to ask you, for folks who have been listening to the episodes and following along with the details of your case, there are some loose threads. Right. There were two men mm-hmm. who were implicated in the crime who were never charged. Mm-hmm. And there's sort of a sense of an injustice there. Right. Not obviously just to you, but mm-hmm. also to the victims and their families. Agreed. Talk to me about that. How do you think about that? I think that we're missing the mark. It should not be enough for facts to come out that reflects my innocence, but equally reflects other individuals' guilt. The judge was courageous to act, but the local DA in Kansas City has failed to act. There's strong evidence, convictable evidence available that could send the right individuals to prison, or one of the individuals, because one have died, um, but they refused to do so, I think as a part of extended denial, in my opinion, just to deny the fact that a mistake happened, to proceed with this case as far as to acknowledge that a mistake actually happened, and maybe even for legal maneuvering, because I do have a civil case pending now, that if we do that, then we stick our foot in our mouth, and when the civil 
part of it come, you can probably use that to further show that you knew you sent the wrong person to prison and you knew you should have been pursuing this guy. Maybe that's their thinking. But at the end of the day, society should be concerned because there's a killer at large. We would never go for that ordinarily, but we tend to go for it, at least back on the Midwest and Missouri side. It's kind of sad. Well, Sean, talk to us about that. It feels weird for someone to say, you made a mistake here. That obviously means you had the wrong person. So then what? Yeah. Uh, One of the problems is that the evidence is manipulated to some degree in order to convict an innocent person. And those very manipulations, if you charge the people who really did this, can be used by those individuals when they become defendants to create reasonable doubt in the minds of that jury. And so it's not quite as simple. You know, we have two people could be charged. Ricky has some personal knowledge about one of them that came out in the hearing, but that person has died. And so what Ricky knows from his conversations with that person are not admissible in evidence against the other person who is still at large. But there is still some evidence. And I'm going to be a little more charitable to the current prosecuting attorney because she and I are talking. And she is open to hearing what we have to say. And that chapter of this case is not closed. And is that rare that something like that happens? Yes, it is relatively rare, although in about 25 percent of the DNA exonerations, there is now a real perpetrator who is prosecuted and convicted. So it happens about one in four times. So it does happen and it can happen. You know, another loose end that I wanted to talk about was the prosecutor's role in Ricky's conviction. In the judge's decision, he acknowledged that there was prosecutorial misconduct, that there was evidence that was withheld from Ricky's public defender, Teresa Anderson. What happens to a prosecutor who who was found to have had that kind of misconduct in 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 a trial where it cost a man 23 years of his life? It's relatively rare that you see any kind of discipline against a prosecutor. There have been cases, you can count on one hand in America, prosecutors who have been disbarred for having hidden exculpatory evidence. You probably remember the Duke Lacrosse case Mm. where the exculpatory DNA, the exonerating DNA evidence uh, was hidden by the prosecutor and he was disbarred. Another prosecutor in Arizona was disbarred for similar conduct in an exoneration case. But in one of our exonerations before Ted White back in 2005 when I was first getting into Ricky's case, that prosecutor was reprimanded. Sometimes we see job actions. We see prosecutors fired. That's a little bit more common, but it's still relatively rare. In Dale Helmig's case, that prosecutor became a congressman. In Ellen Reasonover's case, that prosecutor became a judge. You know? And the attorney general who opposed Ricky's appeals in those last stages is now our senator from Missouri. <laughs> you know, So uh, tough on crime gets you votes. So uh, as long as we have a, a prosecuting attorney's office that is a stepping stone to higher political office, as long as these decisions are infected by politics, justice is going to be elusive. 
Ricky, this is kind of an unfair question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Go ahead. What, what would you like to see happen? In an ideal world, is there anything that you think could happen that, that you could lead you to say, okay, there was some kind of justice in the end of all of this? For me? For everyone involved. Absolutely. Um, and I'm committed to that, if I could answer it in this way. Since I've been home, I've picked up the cross, so to speak, or the torch, and I'm committed to being involved in a process of legislative change. One of the other things that kind of hurt me was uh, suggestive identification procedure. There's a remedy to that called a double-blind identification procedure that can remedy that. Some cities and states have them across the country. This is the little girl who identified you and absolutely as well as the state witness Richard Harris they showed them single photos of me first that's you you can't do that then a photo spread then a video lineup of the same guy one two three aha I know who to pick same with the little girl those are things that we can fix the public defender system what we're talking about this broken justice failed public defender system I'm committed to compensation bills good, strong compensation bills in the future for individuals who suffer at the hands of uh, wrongful convictions. So those things will make me happy in the long run. In the short run, my prosecutor, uh, Amy McGowan, she was forced out of office after I was exonerated. And so people of the community went to Topeka. She was on the Kansas side at this time. She took her act on the road. And they uh, championed on my behalf and the behalf of others that she be removed. Um, Probably still got her pension probably can go get a job somewhere else, but at least that was step one. And as I understand it, there's still action being taken by the board. We don't know what that board would do because, as Sean just said, it is very rare. But action uh, against her or complaints against her is in front of the board. I'd not like to see her disbarred. I would be happy if that happened. And, and Sean, picking up on, you know, there was issues of witness identification, faulty witness identification of bad police investigation of a prosecutor who withheld information. We've been focusing on the public defender aspect of this. Can you kind of explain how we should think about what happened in Ricky's case ultimately and how it fits back into that public defender system and and that kind of adversarial system of justice that we have? Yes. As a defense lawyer, my first obligation is to keep the process honest. And so if I am overwhelmed, I'm up to my neck in alligators and the other side takes a leisurely trip into the office every day but has plenty of resources to do their job, then that makes it difficult for me. And in this case, I think this prosecutor is someone who takes advantage of the fact that she has the other side outgunned. And so it's not a level playing field. She's not picking on somebody her own size. And until we change that, the system is always going to be out of balance. In so many cases, we see prosecutors who cheat, but they don't get caught because the other side is bringing a knife to a gunfight. And in this case, in Ricky's case, he was defended by a lawyer who I think is a good person and a good lawyer. But she was outgunned by an unscrupulous, crafty, skilled prosecutor. And as long as those odds are so uneven, uh, defendants are at risk of going to prison when they're innocent. And you kind of talked about with me once that if you look at the registry of exonerations, there's a lot of different reasons people get wrongfully convicted. But you think that all goes back 
ultimately to the defense attorney and their ability to suss out those things? Not 100 percent of the time, but a lot of the times. So we've learned by looking at DNA exonerations, we reverse engineer those convictions and we see what kind of evidence was used to get those convictions. And so there'll be snitch testimony. There'll be, in a lot of cases, confession procedures that produce wrongful confessions, uh, bad identification procedures like what happened in Ricky's case. A skilled attorney can dismantle that kind of evidence through a tough and skilled cross-examination, through discovery, through aggressive investigation. If you don't have those resources, you can't prevent those wrongful convictions. And so a lot of wrongful convictions, maybe a quarter of them, are based on Brady evidence. Brady is the case that says you have to turn over exculpatory evidence. This is prosecutorial misconduct. Prosecutorial misconduct. It's kind of a subcategory of prosecutorial misconduct. But a, a good defense attorney could ferret that information out and it becomes much more useful to have it before trial <laughs> rather than after trial. So the defense lawyer is really the soul of the process. Uh, I love the quote you pulled from Gideon versus Wainwright, a court is not properly constituted unless it consists of a prosecutor, a judge, and a defense attorney. Mm. And in fact, the defense attorney is the only component of a criminal court that the Constitution says must be there now. You know, Ricky, I'm curious. We've talked so much over the life of the podcast about this system, right? Like it's this big, unwieldy thing. There are people making up that system, people whose lives are dependent on that system. And I'm curious from your perspective, you know, all the public defenders we've talked to, Frank has talked to dozens and dozens mm -hmm. of them now. Mm -hmm. They all seem to be trying to do their best, to mm -hmm. Sean's point. Mm -hmm. And yet millions of people are reliant on people who just don't have the resources they need to properly defend their right. clients. From your perspective, because you know this system inside and out now, how do you process that when you're trying to separate the person from the system? I, I think that our system, our, our public defender systems across the country, Missouri being ranked 49th as the worst, I think it's designed that way. I, I really do think it's designed to fail. I've seen it even in prison. They give you clothes but the lowest grade. They feed you but the lowest grade. It don't have to be hot. It don't have to be done. It don't have to be different. We fed you. And we put you on a cot. So to me, the, our public defender system is like that. But we're going to give it to them in the smallest way, in a minimalist way. And I just, it's almost fake justice. It's fake justice to me. And I think most wrongful convictions are a result of a failed public defender system. Real lawyers, qualified lawyers, lawyers with time, energy, and resources usually can flush this stuff out. I don't know the statistics, but I don't think most innocent men or women had a good lawyer. I think most of them have public defenders. And I just, I don't think it's real. I don't think it's real. It's not possible. How is it possible? How? How is it possible for a lawyer who have 80 cases, 40 or 50 of them is serious stuff, violent murders, robberies? How? I only work eight hours a day. How is it? It's not even possible. It frustrates me. How is it possible? I'm talking about only anybody, a, a smart seven-year-old who may be sitting in this interview could say, Mommy, Daddy, how is that possible? You know the kids are smart these days. It simply isn't possible. But 
we talk about it and we say, okay. And um, that's why even after we're done with this broken justice, um, I am really, I talked to Sean, I'm really committed about carrying the conversation on across the city, across this country to really talk about it. I'm working on for January, maybe early February, a panel discussion in Kansas City about broken justice in our public defender system. I don't want to just keep talking about it. I want to do something about it. And I hope that from here we can springboard into a particular action. Well, you use the word hope. And when the system is so depleted and so broken in so many ways, you still have hope it can be fixed? I do. I absolutely do. Look at me. I'm here talking to you guys today against all hope, against all hope. You know, only less than 1% ever succeed on appeal. And I knew those odds early on. But you have to believe that things can change, that things can get better. If we don't, then we succumb and we become victims of a reality that could have possibly been changed. I refuse to subscribe to that notion, especially after winning my deserved freedom especially after having an opportunity to work with Sean, especially after having an opportunity to be here with you guys. Of course, I believe in hope. Hope is what we breathe on. Hope is what I survived on. And hope is what I continue to have in thinking that this system will change one day, maybe not tomorrow, maybe not two years from now, but perhaps before I leave this earth so our grandkids can have something to believe in. It might not work today. But tomorrow still up for options. So, sure. Sean, one of the kind of concerns I had in reporting this story and what we continue to try to do is, you know, I, I would hate for people to walk away thinking public defenders are bad lawyers because they don't care. Because so many people go into this for the right reasons to try to help people who have no voice in society. And I wondered if you, as a former public defender, if you could just talk about that kind of tension between criticizing the system but the system that so many people are working in to try to make better. Yeah. I mean, I was I was the chief public defender in Kansas City. And when I was in charge of the office, if the average attorney caseload hit 40 cases per lawyer, I began to worry at that point that we couldn't do competent representation. And so I could go to the presiding judge and say, I need you to appoint private lawyers until our caseload gets down to where it should be, which I considered about 20 felonies per lawyer. That's where a lawyer can be effective. And we were effective. We got uh, convictions in less than half of our jury trials. And so it was a good office. Uh, but the problem was they took that power away. And that's why I left the defender system in 1989. So without that safety valve, Caseloads have gotten up to 120 cases a lawyer. I didn't think lawyers could do their job at 40 cases a lawyer, and here we are at 120. So that safety valve has to come back, but that's a Band-Aid. Without that Band-Aid, I think the only way really to solve the problem is do what the federal system did in 1990 and require parity of salary and caseload between public defenders and U.S. attorneys. And since they've done that, you don't hear these discussions 
about the federal public defender system. In fact, here in Washington, D.C., they have that parity, and it is the gold standard public defender office in America. Mm. Lots of law professors come out of this office. Lots of people like uh, Steve Bright and the Southern Center for Human Rights and you know, some amazing lawyers in America have cut their teeth in this office uh, here. That's not that hard to do. But if they had a fiscal note attached to every bill that says we're going to stiffen these penalties or we're going to create this new kind of crime that we'll prosecute, if they had the fiscal note attached to it that said, okay, we're going to have to increase the public defender budget and the prosecutor budget accordingly, then maybe we wouldn't be on this freight train headed to mass incarceration. Really, I think uh, the underfunding of public defenders is a necessary condition to be where we are now. If they had to pick on somebody their own size to put somebody in prison, it would be a harder thing to do. And we might have a more moderate, merciful criminal justice system than we have now. So, Ricky, I'll give you the last word here. You're on day 112 of freedom. I am. What does day 512 look like? What does day 10,012 look like? Well, I have my eyes on the prize. And so some of the things that I'm interested in, in a nutshell, or in categories is advocacy work, career, things that I want to do. I'm a writer. So books, plays. I have one of my plays in front of um, the director of the Kansas City Repertory Theater. I just finished Justice, Where Are You? a play about injustice, what it looks like when overzealous prosecutors act or myopic thinking detectives go into action. I just launched I Am Resilience, where I'm speaking. So I'm just entering the speaking circuit where I'm crisscrossing the country, sharing my story about my resilience, how others can discover theirs. So I'll be doing that. You'll be seeing me doing that. I will be starting in 2020, Life After 23. Um, where I'm going to try to take people along with me and share what it's been like for me after spending 23 years in prison. I don't want to close the curtains. I want to open them up and allow people to see uh, what it's actually like, what we go through, good and bad. And so those are some of the things that you can see in day 500, day 1,000, day 10,000. So, But those are all things you're putting out into the world, right? I am. I guess I want to know how you think you hope you wake up feeling 10 years from now. Well, that's easy. On my tombstone, I wanted to say I came, I lived, I mattered. So I want to wake up every day feeling like I'm doing meaningful things and that I'm mattering. You know, Stephen Covey wrote in one of his books, Seven Habits of Highly Successful People, begin with the end in mind. He says, imagine your eulogy. What would you want people to say? If I want people to say he's kind, be kind. If I want people to say he made a difference, then begin making a difference. If I want people to say he was a thoughtful and a meaningful individual, then I need to be thoughtful and meaningful. And so that's what I hope for myself, every day to wake up thoughtful, meaningful, feeling like I'm making a difference in this world, and I can rest when they write on my tombstone, I came, I lived, I mattered. Ricky Kidd, I can't thank you enough for being here, for sharing your story with us. Sean O'Brien, thank you very much for being here as well. 
And for all of you out there listening, thank you for tuning in. If you have any questions for me or for Frank or for Sean O'Brien or Ricky Kidd, you can always send them to podcasts at newshour.org. Tweet at us at NewsHour and leave us a review in Apple Podcasts. Check out the show extras on our website, pbs.org slash newshour slash podcasts. Thanks for listening. 